Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. question. Do you ever think about the fact that you follow a religion whose key figure, Jesus, was crucified? And, and you are told, we are told to imitate him. Uh, be like Jesus. Have you, what would Jesus do, right? Well, have you ever thought about the fact that this same person, Jesus, said things like, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost your life. If you follow me, people will hate you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Or think about the apostles. Do you ever think about this, that Jesus' 12 closest companions, the guys who wrote most of the New Testament, all died brutal and gory deaths, killed simply because they were following Jesus. They were spreading the good news of Jesus. Or think about the Apostle Paul. He was beaten constantly, spent most of his life in prison, was stoned on multiple occasions, and even shipwrecked three times, simply because he was a Christian. That was the only charge. That was enough for people to kill them. The only reason for the beatings and murder attempts. And these are our role models. These are the men that we aspire to be like. My question is, what caused them to live such radical lives? How were they able to endure such hostility and physical violence? How were they to face these brutal deaths without fear and in fact with joy, many times going to their deaths singing with hope? Why did they choose this path? Why did they choose the path of suffering? How did they endure this? What gave them this hope? What gave them this strength? And it's not like the killing of Christians stopped in the first century. The first 400 years of the church are a bloodbath. They are filled with the stories of men and women gladly giving up their lives. Gladly enduring brutal and gruesome executions. Gladly being thrown to lions, nailed to crosses, and burned alive. Hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ. Why did they endure this? How did they endure this? Why take this hard route? Why suffer for doing good? And even after the first 400 years of the church, it doesn't get much better. Christians for the last 1,500 years have continued to be the objects of violence, marginalization, and scorn. We tend to forget this because we don't always see it right before our eyes here in America. The violence, the suffering, the persecution continues even to this day. This last Easter... Uh, During Holy Week, dozens of uh, Egyptian Christians were slaughtered in two church bombings in Egypt uh, committed by ISIS jihadists desiring simply to kill Christians. That's enough for them. That was their purpose. And just this last week, as many of you have heard, again, in Egypt, ISIS fighters disguised as security guards waved down a couple of buses that were filled with Christians going to visit an ancient monastery. They told everyone to get out of the buses. They lined them up and forced them to recite the Shahada, which is the Muslim confession of faith. When the Christians refused, they shot them. Men, women, and children, all killed, 28 dead, and many more wounded, simply 
for being Christian. This is the real life. This, this, this is our lot as Christians. This is the cost of the faith for many Christians around the world today. And these are just the stories we know of. There's thousands that we never hear of. But again, the question I want to ask is how do they endure this and why? Why do they choose suffering instead of the easy way out? What gives them hope? What gives them the strength in the midst of suffering? And even here in America, we still suffer for choosing to live as a Christian. Much differently, but it still happens. It might look different than it does in Egypt, but what we learned last week from 1 Peter in chapter 3, 13 through 17, is that there are times in a Christian's life when they will have to choose to do the right thing and suffer for it. There are simply going to be those inevitable times when our godliness will conflict with someone else's agenda of what they want to do. Or it will conflict with a financial profit they want to make. Or it will conflict with a lifestyle they want to justify. And when it does, you will be faced with the possibility of hostility, harassment, or persecution for holding to your convictions. It could be a boss who wants you to cheat on his finances, promising that if you do, he'll give you a raise, and if you don't, he'll fire you. It might be lying on a social security form or a tax form to receive more money for the government. It might be a student who grabs you before class and wants to copy your homework or wants you to help them cheat on a test. It might be a relative inviting you to host a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever which you simply cannot support. These are just hypotheticals, but I think you get the point. In each of these situations, and many like it, you have a choice. You realize that if you choose the godly thing, the right thing, if you act according to your Christian values, to God's will, it will cause some type of abuse, some type of rip in relationship, some type of harassment. And as trivial as this may sound compared to being gunned down in the desert, it is still real. And so we must ask the same questions. How do we endure this and why? Why choose the hard path? Why should we choose suffering instead of the easy way out? What gives us hope? What gives us the strength? What motivates us? Why should we follow God's will when it causes us harm? Well, our passage from last week ended with Peter's uh, reason. He said this in verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, Peter told us last week that it is better to do good and suffer. It's better to choose to do the right thing and suffer for it than to choose the evil thing. Whether it is beheading, crucifixion, getting beaten, burned, getting mocked, ridiculed, fired, or simply being made fun of, Peter reminded us last week, Christian, face suffering without fear. Face it with hope because it's better than the alternative. And this morning, Peter's going to continue in chapter 3, and he's going to give us uh, four things. He's going to give us the reason that it is better to do good and suffer. Then he's going to give us an example of what that looks like. And then he's going to give us a symbol that we have in the Christian life that is vital to enduring this type of suffering. And he's going to then show us a king. So he's going to give us those four things, a reason, example, a symbol, and a king. And ultimately, after all this is said and done, Peter's conclusion will be this. Because we trust in the resurrection of Christ... We are able to endure suffering while following the commands of Christ our King. Let me repeat that. Because we trust in the resurrection of Christ, we are able to endure suffering while following the commands of Christ our King. 
Well, with that, would you turn with me to 1 Peter 3 this morning as we dig into this passage together. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Now, as we look at 1 Peter 3, the first thing we're going to see this morning in our passage is the reason. The reason why it is better to suffer uh, for good. And it's this. Jesus suffered death for doing good, but he has conquered death. Look at verse 18. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now this might be the most succinct statement of the Gospel in all of Scripture. What, what does this verse teach us? Well, let's break it down by each phrase. First, Peter says this, For Christ also suffered. Now, remember... Let's not disconnect Scripture from itself. This verse follows directly after verse 17. And so Peter had just said, it is better to suffer for doing good. For Christ also suffered. In other words, because it's better to suffer for doing good because Christ also suffered. So again, Peter is giving us his foundational reason of why it's better to suffer for doing good. Why is it better to endure suffering? Because Christ also suffered. Christian, we don't serve a Savior who understands suffering from a distance. We don't worship a God who has an intellectual knowledge of suffering alone, but no real experience of it. No, we serve a Savior who also suffered. He was, as the book of Isaiah describes him, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We worship a God who entered into our existence who took on human flesh, a human nature, and suffered. He suffered physically and he suffered emotionally. And so the first part of Peter's answer to the question, why is it better to suffer for doing good, is simply this. Your Savior Christ also suffered. In other words, he gets it. He went there first. But look what Peter writes in the next part of the sentence. Look at the next clause in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Peter explains us, explains to us the nature and purpose of Christ's suffering. Why did he suffer? Although he was completely sinless and innocent, he took our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered for our sins. So Christ delivered himself over to the Pharisees and allowed himself to be crucified so that he might suffer in our place. That he might suffer and carry on his shoulders the sins of all those who would trust in him. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin, who was sinless, became sin for us. He put himself in our place. In Galatians 3, Paul says that Christ became a curse for us. In other words, he bore the wrath of God in our place, being killed by righteous, unrighteous men. So why? Why did he do this? Peter answers. He says, that he might bring us to God. So why the righteous for the unrighteous? Why did he suffer for sins? That he might bring us to God. 
Christ suffered all this. He became sin. He became a curse. He suffered beatings and ridicule and scoffing. He suffered on the cross, beaten to a bloody pulp and nailed to a piece of wood, placarded before evil men like a hunter's trophy. Why? That he might bring us, might bring you to God, to himself. He might bring you to God. Christian, look at what your salvation cost him. Look at what he endured for you. The pure, innocent, sinless Son of God bore the wrath of an Almighty God for you out of love. Christian, I pray that this morning we would treasure that. Would you hope in that this morning? That God who gave His Son to die in your place will never abandon you. He will not turn His back on you. Your suffering, your persecution, your pain whether it's in an Egyptian desert or in the office place, does not go unseen by Him. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And in the next phrase, Peter is going to explain how Jesus brought us to God, namely by His death and resurrection. Look at the next phrase. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. And so we finally see that Christ suffered. How? By being put to death in the flesh. His flesh, fleshly, natural body was killed, but made alive in the Spirit. In other words, He was resurrected in a new spiritual, resurrection, glorified body. Now at first glance, uh, it almost seems like Peter is saying that, that well, Jesus died physically, and but was resurrected only spiritually. Um, right? Like, like he, he was killed, his body is dead, um, but his spirit is still alive somewhere. Uh, but that's not what Peter's teaching here. And we know this because of a bunch of other scriptures. We know that Jesus resurrected with a true, glorified, physical body. Now, there are many places we could go to see proof of this. Um, but just for time restraints, um, we're going to look at Luke 24. And this is just a short episode uh, that happens after Jesus' resurrection as two of his disciples are walking on the road to the city of Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, verse 36, it says this, And as they were talking about these things, uh, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So they thought he was a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus says, I'm not a spirit. Look, I have hands. Touch me. Feel me. I'm, I'm a physical being. And then to further prove it, he says, I'm hungry. Got anything to eat? And he eats it right before him just to show, again, he's got a real body. He's not just a spirit. So Peter's not saying he's made alive in the spirit in the sense that, well, just his spirit is floating around somewhere. No. Jesus has a real, resurrected, glorified body, which Peter saw, by the way. He is alive. He was dead, and now he's alive. This is the best news for suffering Christians, for persecuted Christians. This is the best news there, best news there could be for Christians. You may know some who are struggling to live out their faith day by day. Jesus Christ has conquered death, and the Holy Spirit has raised him 
into glorious life. This is the hope of the Christian. The reason, Peter tells us, that we as Christians can endure any suffering and any persecution that comes our way. If we are in Christ, if we are trusting in Christ, our life is hidden in Him, then we also will be raised with Him to glory one day. Our hope is alive and true. Peter calls it a living hope in chapter 1 because Jesus Christ is alive and true and our hope is in Him. He did this for us. And so Peter has given us the reason for why it is better to suffer for doing good. Jesus suffered death for doing good, but he conquered death. And so it is better to suffer for doing good because Jesus did, and he conquered death. Well, now Peter's going to move on to give us an example. And obviously, Jesus is the supreme example of this, but Peter's going to give us another example. An example of someone who, although he was righteous, suffered for doing good, but because he trusted in God was saved in the end. This brings us to the second part of Peter's explanation, which is the example. And his point here is this. Noah suffered for doing good, but he was saved through trusting God. Let me repeat that. Noah suffered for doing good, but he was saved through trusting God. Now, to be honest, these next two verses, uh, 19 and 20, um, are known, many people have said, to be the most confusing and obscure verses in the New Testament. Thanks, Rob. So, uh, conservative Bible scholars uh, have, have different opinions on these verses. So, I want to say before we go into this that there's basically two main interpretations, um, which I'll explain in a second. Um, but good people land on both sides. Um, but here's the key thing. Depending on which interpretation you take, it doesn't actually change the main point of the passage. So, either way... They're both getting at the fact that Noah suffered for doing good, but was saved in the end through trusting God. So again, as we look at verse 19, remember that that's Peter's point. So let's read verses 19 and 20, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the nitty-gritty. So here's what it says. Verse 19, in which, so in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because or when they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, if you're thinking, what is he talking about? Um, that's what most people think. Uh, what are, then you're probably on the right track. So, we're going to need to do a little detective work. What is going on in this passage? And as we look at it, there are two main questions we need to answer. And here's where kind of the, the controversy ensues. First, who are these spirits in prison? Christ, it says Christ, he, Christ went and preached to spirits that are now in prison. So who are these spirits? And second, how did Christ go and preach to them? Peter says in the spirit in which Christ went and preached them. Well, what does that mean? How did he do that? Those are the two key questions. Again, there's going to be two different answers to them. So the first interpretation, which, which I don't think is the right interpretation, but again, many respectable people take it, uh, is this. Some people say that the spirits in prison are fallen angels who were disobedient to God in the days of Noah and who have been imprisoned ever since. This view says that after Christ was resurrected and ascended, um, he went to the spirits and proclaimed his victory over them. Basically said what he had accomplished, okay? So that's view number one. Fallen angels and proclaiming his victory to them after the ascension. Now, 
There's many reasons that support that view. I, that view. I don't think it's right. Um, but because mainly, um, I don't think it fits the context as well as the second view. Like the point that Peter's driving at. And here's the second view. The view that I think is right. Um, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, Augustine, and many others take this view that I'm about to tell you. The second view is this. That the spirits in prison are all, all of the sinful people who were on earth in Noah's day, who were destroyed by the flood and are now in Hades, uh, holding and sent spirits in prison. They are identified in verse 20 as those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This reference to Noah doesn't make as much sense if the spirits in prison are fallen angels. Uh, but it makes all the sense in the world if the, these people, these spirits in prison, are the people who ridiculed Noah for building the ark. The people who were so evil, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading. Think about it. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. During this time, God was patient with these people, giving them a chance to repent before he brought the waters of judgment. But all during these 120 years, the people on earth at that time... Uh, continue to disobey and rebel against God, uh, as Genesis 6 says, corrupting their corruption on the earth. And eventually they were destroyed in the flood. They did not escape safely through the water like Noah and his family. The spirits in prison, I believe, are the disobedient people in Noah's day. So that's the first question. The second question then is, how did Christ go and preach to these people? Christ lived thousands of years after the flood. How did he go and preach to these people who were being disobedient while the ark was being built? Well, the answer is that he preached to them as a spirit within Noah. In spirit form, he entered into Noah, and through Noah, he spoke to that generation. In the years before the flood, the spirit of Christ was in Noah, preaching through him to the men and women of that day, rebuking them of their evil and warning them of God's judgment. Warning, warning them of God's impending judgment. And that may sound a little strange until you begin to examine uh, some of the reasoning for that. So, just like, think of the Old Testament prophets. Just like the Holy Spirit, uh, or as he's sometimes called, the Spirit of Christ, is within us, so also during the Old Testament times, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Spirit often would enter into people and cause them to prophesy and preach. This happens over and over in the Old Testament. Now, we saw this. Peter talks about this in chapter 1 of his letter. This very same book. He says that the spirit of Christ was in godly people in the Old Testament, causing his words to come through them. Earlier in this letter, Peter had said that the writers of the Old Testament realized that the spirit of Christ was in them, and that's what led them to prophesy about events in the future, the coming of Christ, even though they didn't fully understand the things they were writing. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10-12. He says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. These prophets knew the Spirit of Christ was speaking through them, but they also knew that only a future generation would someday put it all together. Christ preaching in the Spirit through Noah. Now, if this passage seems a little bit scatterbrained, that's okay, because it kind of seems as if Peter was writing about Christ's death, resurrection, and the Spirit, and suddenly remembers that there was a time that another man suffered for doing good and was saved, so he cuts right in. It's almost like he dropped his pen and had an aha moment, so he throws it in here. 
But I mean, think about it. Noah is the perfect example of someone who suffered for doing good, for following God's commands, but in the end was saved for it. For 120 years, he's building this ark, enduring ridicule by people around him. I mean, this guy is literally building a massive boat in the middle of nowhere, which 510 feet long, 50 feet high, with a storage space of over 450 semi-trailers, just building it on the land. Everyone who walks by is going, okay, like you're going to get that to the water anytime. Uh, he looks crazy, right? And here he's building this big thing in the middle of the wilderness simply because he believes what God has told him to do. God told him to build it, and he said, okay. People are ridiculing him, but I'm sure Noah's thinking, you guys think I'm stupid now, but God's judgment is coming. So just like sinful people hated Jesus for his righteousness, the people in Noah's day hated him for his. Hebrews says that he condemned them with his righteousness. So because Noah faithfully obeyed God, he was saved from the water along with his family. He was saved from God's judgment because he trusted in God and obeyed him. Because Noah trusted in God, he was able to endure the suffering while following the commands of God and was saved. So Peter has given us the reason why it's better to suffer for doing good, and it's, it was this, that Jesus suffered for doing good, but he has conquered death. And Peter has given us an example, and it was that Noah, who because he trusted in God, was able to endure suffering while following the commands of God, and he was saved. See, there's a pattern going on here that Peter's trying to show us. Following God's will, enduring suffering, and salvation in the end. See, Jesus followed God's will, he suffered for it, but he was raised. Noah followed God's commands, he suffered for it, but he was saved. And so this brings us to our third point this morning. We've seen the reason, we've seen the example, and now we're going to see the symbol. And it's this, that baptism is a physical sign which shows our trust in the resurrection of Christ. Baptism, Peter says, is how we, as Christians, identify ourselves with Jesus. Baptism is a physical ceremony that is meant to symbolize an inward spiritual reality. Baptism is an appeal, Peter says, to God that we really do trust him and that we really are serious about following Christ. Look at verse 21. Uh, it says this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, to, to the ark and the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember what I said at the beginning was the main point of this entire passage. Because we trust in the resurrection of Christ, we are able to endure suffering while following the commands of Christ our King. You see how it's connecting. Peter's point is that Christians endure suffering by trusting in the resurrection of Christ. And baptism is the way that God has given us of testifying and identifying with the resurrection of Christ. Of letting everyone know that we identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what Peter's getting at here. Now, some people will look at verse 21 and say, Well, look, it says baptism saves you, so that must mean then that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. If you're baptized, you're saved. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. Black and white, what's the deal? But Peter makes it clear that he rejects that view. Peter makes it clear that it's not, it's not the physical aspect of baptism that is important. Um, this is why he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not about the water just going over your skin uh, that is important with baptism. In other words, it's not a magical ceremony. It's not an incantation you do that, poof, you changes you. It's not like that. 
Peter says rather that the power of baptism is that it's an appeal to God for a good conscience or a pure conscience, a clean conscience. In other words, when baptism, when someone is baptized, it is them coming to Christ, publicly identifying with him and placing their trust in him in a very public way. So is baptism necessary for salvation? No, because it's, again, Peter says it's not a magical ritual that we do. But it is, is it commanded in Scripture? Absolutely. There is no such thing in the New Testament of unbaptized Christians. As soon as they find them, as soon as they believe, they baptize them. Think of the uh, Philippian, sorry, Philip and the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Got backwards there. Um, so, and even with that, we can just look at one simple example. Remember back on uh, the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up to give his grand sermon. And he gives this whole long explanation. And the people are convicted. It says they're cut to the heart. And the response to Peter's preaching is, what must we do? That was, whoa. Yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty good. Uh, oh, man. So he stands up, he preaches. He gives his sermon. They're convicted and says, what? And they, they yell out to him, what must we do? And Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're a professing believer in Christ and have never been baptized, now's the time. Repent and be baptized. That's the command. Peter explains baptism in this passage uh, as being like Noah's Ark, which is kind of interesting. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, referring back to Noah's Ark. Now, how does baptism correspond? Or, or how is the Ark a picture of baptism? Well, think about it. Noah's Ark allowed Noah and his family to pass safely through the waters of God's judgment, right? Okay, well, think about how the New Testament talks about baptism. Baptism is a picture of our death going down into the water, so there's water in both of these. De water in this represents death. And our resurrection being brought up out of the water. So the water in baptism symbolizes God's judgment, death, for the wages of sin is death, and salvation from God's judgment, being raised to life. So in other words, baptism symbolizes our passing through the waters of God's judgment, much like the ark allowed Noah to pass through the waters of God's judgment. It's judgment and life. So that's the picture. It's a picture saying, because I will trust in Christ, I will identify, I will die with Christ and rise again with him. Look how Paul talks about it in Romans 6, 3 through 5. Just, just think about the language he uses and how this should impact the way that we view baptism. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism into death, that's the going down into the water, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, death and life, death and resurrection. Baptism joins you to the death and resurrection of Christ, going into the water, dying underneath it, and then coming out as though raised from the dead. It all pictures your eventual salvation in Jesus Christ. The water of the flood is a picture of God's judgment on sin. The water of baptism is a picture of God's judgment on sin. But you do not perish in the water. We don't perish in the water. Noah didn't perish because he was in the ark. 
We don't perish because we are in Christ. Christ took the judgment for our sin. And just as Christ rose victoriously over death, so baptism symbolizes our union with him. We die to sin and we rise to newness of life in Christ. So, if you are in Christ, if you truly believe in him, then the words that Johnny Cash so famously sung are true of you. Ain't no grave can hold your body down. Why? How do we know this? Because the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Death was defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ. And as we are in Christ, no grave will be able to hold us down when Jesus comes for us on that day either. And baptism is a sign that our hope lies in Him. That our hope lies in Christ, in His death and His resurrection. Baptism is our pledge to God to accept us as He accepts His Son. Baptism joins us to the resurrection power of Christ. And so Peter encourages these suffering Christians and us by pointing us to our baptism. When times get tough, when fear starts to creep into our hearts, when, we were, when we're facing scorn, when we're facing persecution or any type of suffering, think of your baptism. Remember that you have died. You're already dead. You've been raised to newness of life. And that one day you will soon rise again to dwell in the presence of God forever. What can man do to you? You're already dead. With that truth at the forefront of our minds, no person, no thing can cause us any fear. So Peter has answered this question, why is it better to suffer for doing good with three things? A reason, Jesus suffered death for doing good, he has conquered it. An example, Noah suffered for doing good, but he was saved through trusting God. And a symbol, baptism, is a physical sign of this, which shows us, which shows our trust in the resurrection of Christ. And now Peter ends by showing us our king. Why is it better to follow God's will and suffer? Because Jesus is king. Look at verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus Christ has been exalted to the highest seat of power in the universe. Jesus Christ is king. He's the king, and he's the king of all kings. There is no one higher. There's no one more powerful than Jesus. No angel, no demon, no devil, no earthly tyrant, no one. Jesus rules them all. Even death itself will one day be cast into the lake of fire by Jesus Christ under his authority. And so, brothers and sisters, this should be a reason to be terrified of the judgment of God. But we need not be, because it was this very same king who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to himself. Brothers and sisters, you are safe in him as Noah was safe in the ark. You can trust him. In him, you will pass through God's judgment unscathed. And in the meantime, while you're here on this earth, Peter says, do not fear any persecution or suffering. Do not fear death. Instead, follow God's will no matter the cost. This is the better way, Peter says. Do not give up. Do not give in. This is the better path, even though it will include suffering. So how will we do this again? Because we trust in the resurrection of Christ, we are able to endure suffering while following the commands of Christ, our King. This was the secret of the apostles. This is how they endured suffering and death. This is the secret of the Egyptian martyrs. This is why they'll stand with a gun to their head and say, I will only confess Christ. 
even if it means my death, because I trust in the resurrection of Christ. This is why they chose and endured suffering, even death. But friends, think about what this means to those who refuse to trust in Christ. There's no encouragement here for anyone who rejects Christ. There's no resurrection life for those who reject Christ. You will not pass through God's judgment safely. If you are outside of, the, outside of Christ this morning, as the Apostle Paul says, God's wrath abides on you. But friend, it doesn't need to stay this way. In love, God has opened up the way to salvation through the blood of His very own Son to any who will turn to Him. Here's the picture. If you are outside of Christ, you're like those sitting outside of Noah's ark and the rain is beginning to fall. Peter will later say in chapter 4 that the time for God's judgment is now. Get into the ark. Trust in Christ if you're not already. Do not delay. Turn to Christ this morning. Cry out to Him in prayer. Cry out to Him for mercy. Trust in Him for salvation. And you will find Him to be a perfect Savior and a good and merciful King. So let us all this morning trust in the resurrection of Christ and let us endure suffering while following the commands of Christ, our King. Let us do so this morning, this week, and the rest of our lives until we meet Him one day in glory. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes up? Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory for the salvation that you purchased for us through the blood of your Son. Father, I pray that you would drive this truth down deep into the very depths of our heart, Lord. Lord, would you teach us what it means to trust in the resurrection of Christ, Lord? Would you enable us to live lives without fear? Would you enable us to endure suffering without fear, Lord? Would you teach us, Lord, that it is better to follow you and endure suffering? Father, we give you all the glory for this, Father. We worship and praise you, Lord. Have mercy on us this morning. And now may you, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of your eternal covenant, equip us, God, with everything good that we may do your will, working in us which is that which is pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, dominion, authority, and majesty, forever and ever. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.